Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. I want to take my sermon topic this morning from the hymn we just sang by Augustus Toplady. The last stanza of the first verse says, Be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. Let's think together for a few moments, God being our helper this morning, about sin's double cure. And I call your attention to the 32nd Psalm, reading the first two verses. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. I suggest these verses speak of sin's double cure. Of course, in our hymnal, the actual verse goes like this, rock of ages cleft for me. A cleft rock is a rock with a hiding place. And of course, this is a reference to Jesus Christ. He is the rock of ages. Through all seasons and ages and times, Jesus Christ is the same. But this rock was wounded, it was cleft. And the hymn writer says, may I hide myself in thee in the cleft of the rock. And then notice this imagery. Let the water and the blood which flowed from thy wounded side be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Now, some versions of this hymn say, save me from its guilt and power. That's saying the same thing. Save me from sin's guilt. Save me from sin's power. Save me from divine wrath and then make me pure, cleanse me. And notice the imagery that is used here is taken from that familiar scene in John 19, 34, where it says that the soldier pierced the side of Jesus and forthwith came the route, blood and water. Now there's a medical explanation for that, but I think it's appropriate that Mr. Toplady sees the blood and the water in a spiritual sense. He sees it as representative of both the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus, but he also sees it as the payment for our sins. That is, this one sacrifice takes away both sin's guilt and sin's power in our lives. There's a double cure here. I think the prophet Isaiah refers to the same double curative value in the blood of Christ in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, in that familiar passage in which he says, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Here's the preacher's job description. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished Her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Notice the word double. He uses this double imperative, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. It sounds like the Lord intends for his preachers to comfort God's people. Now, do you ever need comfort? We're living in a world of sorrow, sadness, difficulty, challenge. And each one of us feels the need, I'm sure, from time to time of being encouraged, being comforted. 
We have sadnesses, challenges, setbacks, disappointments, and how wonderful to know that our God is interested in encouraging and consoling his children. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Now the gospel is not for the world at large, it's for his people. The message of comfort is not for the wicked in their disobedience. The rebellious, my friends, have no reason to be comforted, but for God's people who feel the conviction of their sins, for God's people who feel their need of him, the good news of the gospel is there's comfort to be had in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished. My beloved, your greatest battle has already been fought by Jesus Christ. And victory is yours. You're on the winning side. There's comfort in that message. Her iniquity is pardoned. And you have received from the Lord's hand double for all of your sins. Now let's look at the text that we read in Psalm 32. This was Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo's favorite psalm. So beloved was Psalm 32 to him that he had it inscribed on the wall next to his bed before he died so he might meditate upon it. It's the second of a number of penitential psalms in the Psalter, that is, psalms of repentance. The other penitential psalms are Psalm 6, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, Psalm 102, 130, and 143. Those are the penitential psalms in the Psalter. And here you have a penitential psalm, Psalm 32, in which the psalmist is talking about his sin problem. Now, by the way, of all the problems you and I have in our lives, none is greater than the sin problem. If I were to ask you what your greatest problem is today, I'm sure many of you would say, well, I've got some health problems. But I dare say that physical health is not as big of an issue as our relationship before God is concerned. That's the greatest need we have, and the greatest problem we have is that we're sinners. You say, Brother Mike, I'm having trouble making good grades in school, or I have some financial difficulties right now. I'm telling you, although they are very important and big problems to you right now, yet in the grand scheme of things, those things pale into insignificance in comparison to the sin problem that we have before God. And therefore, our greatest need is forgiveness. And the greatest treasure in life, my beloved, whether you know it or not this morning, is to be forgiven of your sins, to have a sense of God's divine pardon. Now, Psalm 32 is dealing with that subject. That's what all of these penitential psalms are talking about. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. And notice the caption above the psalm. It says it's one of the masculine psalms, a psalm of David, and he uses this Hebrew word masculine. It's one of 13 masculine psalms, and the word masculine simply means to give instruction. So this is a teaching or didactic psalm. It's designed to instruct the individual that's under conviction of sin how to obtain peace in his heart. Martin Luther called this psalm together with the 51st, the 130th, and the 143rd, Psalmi Paulini, or the Pauline Psalms. Because each of these psalms, Psalm 32, 51, 130, and 143, 
teach the same theology of grace that Paul did in his New Testament epistles. Each of these emphasizes that the forgiveness of sins is due to God's sovereign grace, not the works of the sinner. Luther said, that word, there is forgiveness with thee, in Psalm 130, that thou mayest be feared, is just what Paul says in the New Testament. It does away with all human merit and teaches us to confess God's free grace alone. Indeed, my friends, that's the doctrine of the Pauline epistles that is spelled out in Psalms like the 32nd that we're talking about this morning. Notice it begins like the very first psalm begins, blessed is he. First psalm starts like this, blessed is the man. It begins with benediction. Now the word blessed here in the Hebrew is plural. And it means, oh the blessedness. Oh how very, very happy is he. And you'll notice that the apostle Paul quotes this psalm in the fourth chapter of Romans in the New Testament, in the sixth verse, when he says, Even as David, who was the author of this psalm, a psalm of David, describeth the blessedness of the man, unto whom God imputeth righteousness without work, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. And then he asks this question, Cometh this blessedness, this state of happiness, this inward kind of fulfillment and satisfaction, does this experience come upon the circumcision only? Are the Jews the only one who know anything about God's forgiveness of sin or upon the uncircumcision also? Can Gentiles also share in this blessed state? And he answers his own question saying, not to the circumcision only, but to the uncircumcision also. And he cites Abraham's experience who was blessed by God even when he was uncircumcised as evidence of God's forgiveness and his grace upon people, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. His people, my friends, in all ethnicities and classes of society can say that I know what it is to have blessed assurance that Jesus is mine. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. This word blessed literally means to be privileged or favored by God. It speaks of a deep inward satisfaction that comes not from outward circumstances, but from the Lord's grace. It includes the idea of happiness and prosperity and significance and inward peace. My beloved, may I say that of all the blessings to be had in this world, none is greater than this. And as we enter upon this Thanksgiving season, may I say the ultimate reason for giving thanks to God is the way that he has blessed you and me with the free pardon of our sins through Jesus Christ. Blessed is he. Now, do you see many happy people in this world? There's not a lot of true happiness in this world, true joy. In fact, solid joy and lasting treasure none but Zion's children know, says John Newton in that wonderful old hymn that we sing sometimes. Indeed, to be blessed by God and to be in a blessed state is something that this world knows nothing of. But the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have a sense that their transgressions are forgiven, that their iniquities are covered, 
they know true blessedness in their lives. The blessed person, in other words, is the one on whom God is smiling. I want to say today, my beloved, if you have a sense that your sins have been forgiven, that your sin has been covered, and that God does not hold you accountable for your sins anymore because those sins have already been charged to Jesus Christ, you are of all men most blessed. And that should give you and me an inward peace and joy and happiness that nothing that this world has to offer can rival. Now, of course, the man who wrote this, David, knew what it was to be convicted of sin. David had sinned on several serious occasions in his life. We can read in 1 Samuel 30 about his unbelief at Ziklag. We, of course, are all familiar with the lust and deception in the Bathsheba incident in which David took another man's wife and she became pregnant and he conspired to have her husband put in a very awkward position that resulted in Uriah's death. And David then took his wife to himself and married her. What a sad scene that was in David's experience. Perhaps you're familiar with the pride that he exhibited when he wanted Israel to be numbered, and God was displeased with that and sent a pestilence upon the people. David was a man who understood what it was to commit sin. But my beloved, I'm glad to tell you today that David also knew the joys of forgiveness. The man who was imperfect and sinful in his own right, yet also understood that God does not judge us based on our works, but he judges us based on the work of Jesus Christ. In other words, David could have never atoned for his own sins. But he says, how happy I am because my sins have been forgiven and covered, and God does not impute iniquity to me. And therefore, I know the blessedness of God's free and pardoning grace. I want to ask you today, do you know the blessedness of forgiveness of sins? Do you know the joy of knowing that your sins have been covered and that you will never meet them again, that God does not hold them against you? And it's not because he's a forgetful God or because he's easy on sin or he's indulgent like a grandfather whose grandchildren can do no wrong in his eyes. No, my friends, the reason that God has forgiven you and me, this holy and righteous God, is because the payment has already been made through Jesus Christ. And that's why your sins have been forgiven. That's why your iniquity has been covered. So in the text, he speaks, I believe, of what we might call the joy of justifying grace. Notice the three picture words for sin in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 32. First, he calls sin transgression. Now, that word is a word picture. To transgress means to cross a line. You ever seen a sign, no trespassing? That means don't cross this line. It means to go beyond a barrier. That's what a transgression, to go beyond. The root word grass means to go. And uh, trans means across or beyond. So to transgress, transgression means that we have crossed a line. Now God drew a line when he said, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. But you know, in our fallen nature, my beloved, every one of us have gone beyond the line. We've crossed the boundary, haven't we? We've broken God's law. That's what a transgression is. Then he uses the word sin. The word sin means to miss the mark. Notice the pictures here. We've crossed a line. We've missed the mark like an arrow that strays from the bullseye. 
God has told us what he expects of us, but my friends, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We have not hit the bullseye. We've fallen short of it. We have veered off course. We've deviated from the path that he's given us. That's what sin is. Sin is a crossing of the line. Sin is a missing of the mark. And then he uses the word iniquity. And the word iniquity speaks of inward twistedness. Something that's crooked. Moral deformity, if you please. Now, most of us have physical deformities. Some more pronounced than others. But there's not a one of us who doesn't have something that's not just right. Whether it's my eyes are not set exactly even in my head or you know, my ears are a little too big for my face or whatever the deformity might be. But my friends, did you know the worst deformities are not on the outside in our lives, they're on the inside. Pride and jealousy and bitterness and selfishness, the twistedness of our moral character, which is there because of our fallen nature, that's the word iniquity. Iniquity speaks of something on the inside. So the first two words speak of something that you've done, you've crossed the line, you've missed the mark through your behavior, through your conduct, through your words, through your attitudes. But my friends, it all stems from something on the inside of us that is twisted and deformed, malformed, if you please. And it is not straight, it's crooked. By nature, every one of us is twisted on the inside. There's a perversion in our hearts. Those are the three picture words used in this passage. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin, there's word number two, is covered, whose iniquity is not imputed. Now notice the three picture words for grace. We've seen three picture words for sin in this passage. Notice there are three picture words for grace. First, forgiven. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. The word forgiven speaks of lifting a burden off of your shoulders. To forgive means to take away, to take up, to lift off of. God has lifted a burden. I think of Bunyan's pilgrim and pilgrim's progress. When he started his journey, he had this big backpack on his back, this heavy load. But I'm telling you, dear friends, when he saw the cross, the burden was taken away. At the cross, at the cross, when I first saw the light, where the burden of sin went away, says the hymn writer. And truly, I suggest that forgiveness is a taking away or a lifting off of your shoulders, the burden of sin. Now, the second word that he uses is covered. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And the word covered speaks of being hidden from danger. Now, Adam and Eve, when they sinned in the Garden of Eden, tried to cover themselves, tried to hide their shame from the all-seeing eye of God. And that's the great danger, that God would see us as we truly are. You know how we are all protective of ourselves? We don't want anybody to really know our secret thoughts, you know. I mean, are there things in your life, you don't have to answer out loud, that uh, you wouldn't want other people to know about you? Are there dark moments that perhaps you try to keep under wraps and, you know, you try to conceal it and try not to... You know, there's always a fear in many of our minds that people would find out just how we really are on the inside. And we, we want to put on a public persona and, you know, reputation to, 
to the degree that other people will see the best side of us, not the worst side. Mark Twain said, we're all like the moon. We all have a dark side. And uh, the fact is that we don't want other people to see that dark side, do we? So we try to conceal it. But you know, the biblical covering that God provides is not a concealing, but it is a protection. In fact, the word atonement in the Old Testament means to cover. Do you remember when the children of Israel were told on the night of the Passover to slay a lamb and take the blood and strike the doorposts around their houses? They were covered with the blood. God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. They were protected from judgment by the blood. That was their atonement, their covering. When the New Testament says that we have received the atonement through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans chapter 5, verse 11, that means that you've been covered by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Just as the law of God in the furniture of the tabernacle was covered with the mercy seat. You know, the Ten Commandments, the two tables of stone were placed in the Ark of the Covenant, and over the top it was covered with a lid to the box called the mercy seat, and the priest sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice on top of the mercy seat so that the eyes of God, when they looked at the law, they saw a covering. My beloved, how wonderful it is to know this morning that my sins and the judgment due to them has been covered by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the man whose transgression is lifted off of him. The consequences of your trespass in crossing the boundaries have been taken by Jesus Christ and that burden has been taken from your shoulders. The fact that you've missed the mark, you've strayed from the course, God has covered that in the blood so that it will not meet you again. And then he says, blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. Notice the word impute, non-imputation. Now this is an accounting term, a bookkeeper's term to impute. It means to charge to the account. Some of you maybe have charge accounts. I don't know if they do that as much anymore at local businesses as they once did. But certainly we all know what a charge card is, a credit card where you can purchase something and you charge it and then you pay later and you are legally obliged. That charge is on your account and uh, you are obligated to pay that. Well, I dare say, my beloved, by nature, you and I are in debt to God. We have an obligation. Sin or iniquity has been charged to our account. You have a legal obligation to pay it. But you see, to non-impute, blessed is the man to whom the Lord imputeth not. He doesn't charge. He doesn't reckon this sin against your account. When God looks at Michael Goen's account in heaven, he doesn't see me as in debt, 10,000 talents without a farthing to pay. He sees my account as paid in full because my sins are not charged against me. You say, well, Man, that's a pretty good deal. Where can I sign up for a deal like that? Well, God signed you up for it before the world began. And you know why that he doesn't charge your sins against you? Not because he's easy on sin again. Not because he's like my little grandson who stayed with us the other night and told my wife that he was uh, going to prepare her everything she wanted in his store for a dollar. He was cooking her a meal. And everything was for a dollar. And finally he said, no, I don't even need the dollar. I've got enough money. I, you can have it all for free. I said, you're not going to stay in business very long like that. You've got to make a little profit if you're going to stay. 
you know, you've got to charge something for your services. I'm telling you, my friends, God does not fail to reckon your sins against you because he's easy on sin and just lets us get by with it. He doesn't impute our sins against us because he's imputed them. He charged them against Jesus Christ. And you want to talk about the best transaction in human history. It's 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Imputation says he charged our sins against Jesus and he's credited Jesus' righteousness to us. That's the good news of the gospel. Now, this is the joy, the blessedness of justifying grace. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. But I want you to notice in our text, he not only speaks of the joy of justifying grace, he speaks of the joy of God sanctifying grace. You see, not only do we believe in the doctrine of justification, but the gospel is a message about the doctrine of sanctification. And you see that in the expression, and in whose spirit, Psalm 32, 2, and in whose spirit there is no guile. Now, first he's been talking about something true about you, but now he's talking about something that's true inside of you. You see, God has not only done something for the psalmist, he's done something in the psalmist. He's not only forgiven his sins and blotted out his transgressions, and covered his iniquities, but he's also done something in his spirit. Blessed is the man whose sin is covered, whose charge account is paid in full. Blessed is the man whose transgression has been lifted off of him. Legally speaking, he's in good shape, but what about personally speaking in his heart? In his spirit, there's no guile. You see, here's the problem, my friends. The problem is that you and I are not only under the penalty of, of legal guilt before God, but we have some personal defilement and corruption in our hearts, don't we? On the record books, I'm telling you, all indications are that I'm in debt, that I'm a sinner. I need something done for me legally as far as the law is concerned, but I also need something done in terms of my personal character inside of me because I've got a bad heart. And I'm telling you, here's the good news of the gospel. According to Psalm 32, there's a double cure for your sins. God has not only done something for his children at the cross, but he does something in his children in the new birth. When they are regenerated, when they are sanctified. So there's both a removal of legal guilt and a cleansing from personal corruption and defilement. In this text, there's a double cure for your sins. Now, here's an illustration of it in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 4. Would you listen to this? He's talking about Joshua, the high priest, who's standing before the judge, and he's clothed in filthy garments. You remember that story? Now, this isn't some bum off the street. This is the high priest, and he's a sinner. You see, even the religious leader is in need of forgiveness. Even the religious leader doesn't measure up doesn't matter what your pedigree is, what your job description is, what family you come from, how wealthy you are, what your social status might be. doesn't matter whether you're religious or a secular individual. My beloved, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Even the high priest stands in need of forgiving grace. And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Satan is standing at his right hand to resist him. The marginal reading of that word resist says to prosecute him. Here's a court scene. The prosecuting attorney is the accuser of the brethren, the devil. 
and a religious man is on trial. And if a religious man again could be on trial, each one of us must recognize that we are accountable to God as well. And notice he's in trouble. Joshua is clothed with filthy garments, says verse 3, and he stood before the angel. Now, how would you like to show up in court wearing the most defiled, corrupt kind of clothes in your wardrobe? If I'm going to court, I'm putting on a suit and a tie. <laughs> I'm going to at least dress for success, you know? It's an important lesson. When I come to church, that's why I don't wear a muscle shirt, because my muscles are going the way of all the earth as I get older. <laughs> I've got one big muscle around my midsection here, but my other muscle, that's why I'm, I don't try to look cool. You know, I, I try to dress for success so that even if I can't preach a lick at a snake, yet people say, he sure looks like a preacher. <laughs> Joshua, though, shows up to court and he's clothed in filthy garments and by the way before the bar of divine justice every one of us my beloved our righteousnesses are as filthy rags we're all unworthy there's not a one of us who merits divine favor we're in bad shape and unless something happens we're done for we're going to be judged as offenders of the holy god of heaven and earth and sentenced to eternal prison in a lake of fire. That's our condition by nature. But then notice what he says here. But the Lord spoke and said, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord which hath chosen Jerusalem. Notice he's a God of electing grace. Even the God who hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. My beloved, I'm glad to tell you that the prosecuting attorney has been kicked out of the courtroom. His case has been dismissed. And court has been adjourned eternally because the Lord says, I have caused his iniquity to pass from him in verse 4. And I will clothe him with change of raiment. Take away the filthy garments from him and clothe him with change of raiment. Notice, God is going to give Joshua a new suit of clothes. And then he said in verse 5, let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments and the angel of the Lord stood by. Notice God not only does something for him, causes his iniquity to pass, but he does something to him and in him. He gives him a change of raiment and sets a fair mitre upon his head. Here's a man clothed in a t-shirt that he used to change the oil in. You know, I've got a few of those. Uh, you know, jeans and t-shirts that I only use when I change the oil in my vehicle. I wouldn't wear them to church. I wear a suit and tie again to church. But you know, when it comes to changing the oil, I'm not about to put on my suit and tie. I wear my t-shirt and jeans. Ones that I've used in the past that have stains on them. But you know, here's the good news of the gospel. By nature, that's all we have in our wardrobe filthy garments, but God has clothed us with change of raiment. Here's the good news. Listen, Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Just as God slew an animal and clothed Adam and Eve with animal skins, so Jesus Christ's righteousness his perfect obedience, his active obedience through his perfect life and his passive obedience when he submitted to the Father and died in my place on the cross have been credited to my account. Now sin was charged against my account by nature, but I'm telling you, Jesus took that charge. 
He was treated as if he had lived your life and my life so that you and I might be treated as if we had lived his spotless, perfect life. And because of that, he's clothed me with a change of raiment. My beloved, you talk about Joseph's coat of many colors that distinguished him. Every child of grace has been given the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ so that we stand before God as righteous as Jesus is righteous. Everything that the law requires us to be, that's justifying grace. But you say, Brother Mike, just a minute. I've still got a problem on the inside. I still have sin in my heart. Okay, legally and positionally, I'm righteous, but yet I know what kind of person I am on the inside. I need help in my heart. Let me illustrate it like this. Imagine someone in prison for capital murder, and he has been sentenced to death. He's on death row. Further, not only does he have a death sentence upon him, but at the same time, while he's in prison, it's discovered that this inmate has terminal cancer. What does he need? What does this man need? You see, well, he needs to be exonerated. He needs to be pardoned from his death sentence. He needs grace. He needs to be pardoned. But you know, even if he gets out of prison, let's say the governor grants him a pardon and he's released from jail, he still has a problem on the inside. Terminal cancer, right? You say, well, then what he needs is a cure from cancer. Well, he may have a cure from cancer, but he's still under the death sentence for the capital crime that he committed, you see. He has a double need, and I'm telling you, you and I have a double need by nature. Not, it's not enough for us to simply be pardoned. We also need to be healed from our malady. So not only has the Lord forgiven my sins, but in my spirit, now he has corrected the twistedness, the guile, the deceit. Blessed is the man in whose spirit there's no guile. Do you remember when Nathanael came to Jesus in John chapter 1? Jesus said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whose spirit there's no guile. Now, this was a Jew, but he wasn't just a natural Jew. He's a true Jew. He's an Israelite indeed. He's truly a child of Abraham. He's a spiritual. He shows evidence that God has done a work of grace in his heart. Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whose spirit there is no guile. You know, David wrote Psalm 32. And remember, we talked about his deception and his lust. And the way he covered, tried to cover up his sin with Bathsheba. He'd taken another man's wife. He'd given in to the flesh. He had failed miserably. It's the blackest mark on his entire history of life. And yet David tries to cover it up. And there's some chicanery, some shenanigans. You know, he's trying to cover it up, conceal the matter, isn't he? Do you think that there's some guile involved in David's life? I'm telling you, my beloved, when God has done a work of grace in your heart, and you've been given a sense of his forgiving mercy, and you've realized that there's no need to be dishonest. There's no need to live in such a way as to try to hedge your bets. People who are forgiven should be the most honest and truthful people in the world. As Psalm 51 says, God desires truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part as he made me to know wisdom. Blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deception or guile. You say, Brother Mike, what you're saying today is that objectively God has already justified me for Jesus sake absolutely and sanctified you he's made you both righteous that's justification that's the legal 
term, and holy. That's the moral term. That's sanctification. God's justifying grace and his sanctifying grace were given to you in Jesus Christ on the cross. That's why 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, But of God are you in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us both righteousness and sanctification. Jesus Christ is all of our righteousness. Jesus Christ is all of our sanctification. Justification is by Christ alone on the cross. In Christ, says Romans 3.24, in him we have redemption. We have been justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's our righteousness. And at the cross, we were also sanctified. Hebrews 10.10 says we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We're both legally righteous and morally holy. We're both without blame, that's justification, and we're holy. As Ephesians 1.4 says that we should be both holy and without blame before him in love. That's both sanctification and justification. What I'm saying is he's delivered us from both the penalty and the power of sin from both its guilt and its power. That's the double cure. Therefore, in Hebrews 12, 24, the redeemed in heaven are described as just men whose spirits have been made perfect. Justified men who have hearts that have been perfected. Do you know what the disembodied souls of the saints in heaven are? My beloved, these are people who have been justified at the cross and sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all so that they're fit for heaven through Christ alone. But here's the rub. The rub is that there's a point of tension in Christian experience because though on the record books of heaven I am legally righteous and holy as Christ is righteous and holy. Yet when I look in the mirror, I know that I'm not there yet in my life right now. The good news of the Christian gospel is not only a proclamation of the objective fact of Christ's justifying and sanctifying grace, but it also calls upon us to live in the light of that double cure in our subjective experience right now. You see, perhaps you ask today, preacher, if what you're preaching is true, that Christ has paid it all, that I'm no longer guilty before God, and that he's taken away the power, you know, as the hymn that we sang this morning by Charles Wesley says, he breaks the power of canceled sin. Notice sin's been canceled, but it still has a power over us. The penalty has been canceled. But canceled sin's power is even broken by the grace of God. He breaks the power of canceled sin and sets the prisoner free. He does that when he quickens, when he works in your heart. At the cross, Jesus justified us. And he made us positionally holy before God. And when you're born again, when the work that he did on the cross is applied to you and me, my friends, he breaks the power of canceled sin and he sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. I know that because his blood availed for me. You see, that's the good news of the gospel. But you say, well, Brother Mike, in my practical life right now, if I'm positionally righteous and holy before God, why do I still struggle with guilt feelings? Maybe that's a question in your mind today. If what you're saying is true, why do I still practice these sinful habits in my life? My life is not consistent with my position before God. The answer is, practically speaking, because you're both a saint and a sinner at the same time right now. Now, if I were to ask you the question, are you a sinner or a saint, what would you say? Many of us would probably say, I'm a sinner. But I'm telling you, you're a saint. 
1 Corinthians 1-2 says to the saints of God at Corinth, sanctified in Jesus Christ. You've been sanctified once and for all by Jesus Christ on the cross. So you're a saint. As far as God's concerned, you're saints. You don't have to wait till you die to be a saint. Somebody says only after someone's dead can they be a saint, and there are just a very few of them. I'm telling you, every one of God's children is a saint right now because of what Christ did at the cross. I could call you saint. Saint Howard, Saint Andy, Saint Cecil, Saint Taylor, Saint Jim, Saint Eunice, Saint Teresa. I could call you saint, Saint Paula. That's right. That's, you're all saints right now, but you're sinners at the same time. Here's a Latin expression that if you haven't learned any Latin this week, you can learn this and you can go home saying, I know a little Latin. Simul justus et peccator. Simul, simultaneously, simul, justus, justus. At the same time, I'm just et peccator and a sinner. A peccadillo, a peccability, a, you know, Christ is impeccable. Peccator means sinful. Here's something true about you and me this morning. At the same time, we're both just and sinful. And that's the theme of Romans 6 through 8 in your Bibles. You say, well, Brother Mike, how may I be in practice what I am in position before God? How can I catch up with what God sees me as through Christ in my daily behavior and practice? It begins by believing the proclamation of the gospel. As Romans 6.11 says, Reckon ye yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, and alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The first thing you need to do is you need to hear the gospel and then count it to your own account. Say, okay, that's true for me. You need to paint yourself into the picture. You know, you can visit Gettysburg Battlefield and learn about the history behind that strategic battle in the Civil War. But there's a cyclorama on the grounds there and a tour guide, if you're able to get a tour, will take you around and show you everything. And at the end of the tour, he will take you into this cyclorama and show you the Battle of Gettysburg in artistic expression, painted in this mural all the way around you. And when I went, the last thing he did is he shined his little flashlight on one man on the wall. And this fellow was backed up against a tree with his right leg up against the tree like that leaned against it. He asked us, do you know who that is? And we all said, I have no idea. He said, that's the artist who painted the picture. And of course, there's Pickett's charge, here's Pickett riding his horse nearby, and here are these Union soldiers, these Confederate soldiers. But the artist painted himself into the picture, and he says, notice he painted himself in Union garb. He's wearing a blue uniform and he put on his sleeve a general's stripes general stripes it's pretty audacious isn't it he's the artist he wasn't in the battle he didn't do any of the fighting he's sure not a general you say boy he sure is taking advantage of the situation to paint himself better than he really is did you know that's what the gospel says to you and me reckon ye yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin when you hear it my friends paint yourself into the picture and you can paint yourself as winners, victors, on the winning side, as generals, princes, and kings, because that's what you are through the grace of God. And then he says, once you've done that, commit yourself to practical holiness, 
Let not sin, therefore. If you believe Jesus died for you and you say, I'm free from sin, my sins have been forgiven through Christ, then he says, then commit yourself to living that way and yield yourselves unto God who saved you. And then as you move forward in Romans 6 through 8 in the 8th chapter, you'll learn that the good news is that the Holy Spirit is active in your ongoing practical sanctification, helping you to die to the flesh and to live to God. If we, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, we shall live. The Spirit is witnessing with your spirit that you're a child of God. And the Holy Spirit, my friends, is sanctifying and helping you to grow in grace. You know, the man who wrote Psalm 32, our text this morning, had previously written Psalm 51. And you know what that psalm is, don't you? Psalm 51 is his psalm of repentance after Nathan the prophet had come to him and said, Thou art the man after his sin with Bathsheba, and David's heart was broken. And in that psalm, he prays, Lord, blot out my sins, and then wash me with hyssop, purge me with hyssop. He needs both legal forgiveness, and he needs an inward cleansing. Create in me a clean heart. I'm telling you, my friends, God has both forgiven you, and he has cleaned you up, made you pure. That's sin's double cure. And in your personal experience, you and I need to learn to pray when we sin. Confessing our sins with the encouragement of this promise that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us, that's the legal side, and to cleanse us from all in right. You have both forgiveness, pardon from your crimes, and you also are cleaned up on the inside from all unrighteousness. My beloved, that's sin's double cure. Top lady said, rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself with thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure or save me from its guilt and its power. The precious blood of Jesus Christ both covers us from divine wrath and it cleanses us from inward corruption. That's sin's double cure. Oh, how very happy, how blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven. That's the reason, my friends, for you and me to live lives of perpetual thanksgiving and praise to God for his pardoning mercy. Rock of ages, for me. Let me Sin could not atone.